Welcome to Little Known Crime. I'm Chandra Mel. If you ask what happened on December 7th, 1941, most Americans should be able to tell you that it was a day of horror that our country had never seen and would not see again for another 60 years. The Japanese military struck the U.S. Naval Fleet in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. According to the National Park Service website, 2,390 American service members and civilians died in the attack, while other sources state that 2,403 deaths occurred. Of that number, it is stated that 1,177 died on the USS Arizona alone. This is the ship that has a memorial bridge that you can visit to view the sunken ship, which leaks oil into the ocean to this very day. 19 of the fleet's ships were damaged or destroyed, including eight of their battleships. The impact of this attack is without question, and it woke the beast that is the American military, giving them the final push to join World War II. What is not as well known, however, is that Americans were the first to attack. As the first wave of ships take off from a Japanese aircraft carrier 200 miles north of Oahu, minesweeper USS Condor sights a periscope. About 30 minutes later, the minesweeper fires the first shots by America in World War II at the Japanese submarine. Easily misunderstood is the timeline. Without getting into the politics and details of the war at the time, the Japanese had already meticulously planned out the attack on Pearl Harbor. This attack is an American tragedy, no doubt. This was an experience that Americans likely could never have imagined even in their worst nightmares. The film Pearl Harbor, featuring Kate Beckinsale, Ben Affleck, and my then-crush Josh Hartnett, was the first movie I cried to after hitting puberty. The suffering of those who drowned in the sinking ships were the ones that hit me the hardest. I have read an account of someone who had tried to rescue men by breaking through the ship's frame as it sunk, and finding out that there was no way for them to get through. So, they had to listen to the cries of the men inside as the water slowly closed in on them. As with all wars, many more horrors would come for the Japanese and the Americans. At this time, about 125,000 Japanese Americans lived on the mainland in the United States, and about 200,000 had immigrated to Hawaii, which was at the time a U.S. territory. There were first-generation immigrants who were not eligible for U.S. citizenship, and the second generation who had been born in America were citizens. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. War Department raised suspicion of Japanese Americans who, in their opinion, might commit espionage despite a lack of evidence to support this. There were political leaders who suggested moving the Japanese-American population to detention centers more inland and getting them off the Pacific coastline, where it was a higher danger. The U.S. Department of Justice did not agree with moving them, and a power struggle with the War Department followed. The War Department created 12 restricted zones along the coast and created curfews for the Japanese Americans in February of 1942. If you broke curfew, you were arrested. On February 19, 
1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. This gave the military authority to restrict anyone from specific areas, which of course meant that they were able to target Japanese Americans without listing them. Germans and Italians were also targeted, though in much smaller numbers. On March 18, 1942, the Federal War Relocation Authority, or WRA, was established. The mission was to, quote, take all people of Japanese descent into custody, surround them with troops, prevent them from buying land, and return them to their former homes at the close of the war, end quote. On March 31st, Japanese Americans along the West Coast were to report to control stations to register their names and all of their family members, at which point they were directed to when and where they would report for removal to an internment camp. There are many who prefer the term incarceration or detention camp over internment, as they state it is exactly what that was for them. Given anywhere between four days and two weeks to report, they were also required to gather as many belongings as they could carry and sell any property within that time period. This gave European Americans a chance to take advantage and vastly undercut prices of what these properties were worth. Between 1942 and 1945, about 120,000 Japanese Americans were held in camps in California, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and Arkansas. With limited hot water, uninsulated barracks sparsely furnished, and shared bathroom and laundry facilities, these camps were anything but comfortable, not even considering all that they had been forced to give up. Camps were surrounded by barbed wire fences and patrolled by guards who were instructed to shoot anyone trying to escape. The population strived to live as normally as possible, setting up schools, churches, farms, and newspapers. They lived in family groups and children played sports. Though they made their efforts to create some semblance of normalcy, they still lived under tension and suspicion. And I cannot imagine the stress that that would cause for your everyday life. I went to the Justia U.S. Supreme Court Center and read through the documents of the Korematsu v. United States 1944 case. As I have stated before, I have no legal background and will not pretend to understand legal language. However, I did my best to get through all the numbers and unfamiliar language to pull out the main storyline of this case. I will present it to you at the best of my ability. Fred Korematsu a 23-year-old Japanese-American living in San Leandro, California, was arrested on Memorial Day, 1942, when he was seen walking down the street. He had defied Executive Order 9066. He originally gave police a fake name and claimed to be of Spanish and Hawaiian descent, but eventually told them his real name and stated that his family was in a relocation camp. He also stated that he wanted to remain in Oakland to make more money and move himself and his girlfriend out east to live freely, rather than be put in a camp. Local newspapers denounced the arrest with inappropriate headlines such as, quote, Oakland Jap held for FBI, end quote. San Leandro Jap held as evader of ouster order. 
the executive order of the American Civil Liberties Union, Ernest Bessig, saw these articles and visited Korematsu, asking him to challenge this with the Supreme Court. Korematsu's passion for his fight grew as he was moved to military custody on the grounds of ignoring a military relocation order. He went to federal court in San Francisco, testifying that, quote, as a civilian of the United States, I am ready, willing, and able to bear arms for this country. He also testified that he had registered for the draft, tried to volunteer for the Navy, had never been to Japan, and could hardly speak Japanese. None of these factors mattered, as the judge found him guilty of violating the order and sentenced him to five years of probation while allowing military police to return him back to camp. A camp which, by his own words, was worse than jail. Korematsu argued that Executive Order 9066 violated the Fifth Amendment. Because habeas corpus had not been suspended, his right to liberty had been infringed upon without due process of law. The Fifth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America, for those of us who do not know, and I quote, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. End quote. Habeas corpus is a fundamental right that protects against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. Another thing to note is that the U.S. had not at that time called for martial law, which gives the military control over the public and laws of the land, as I understand it. The majority felt that the order did not show racial prejudice, but was responding to the strategic imperative of keeping the West Coast secure from sabotage and invasion. Those of the dissent held that it was racially charged and that there was more lenient treatment of German-Americans and Italian-Americans, who also happened to be on the opposing side of the war. They also stated that the courts could still overrule unconstitutional acts taken by the military. It should also be noted that all illegal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. The courts should subject them to rigid scrutiny. The Department of War had deemed that those of Japanese descent had to be excluded from certain areas because of the presence of an unascertained number of disloyal members of the race, most of whom no doubt were in fact loyal to America. Now, according to this document, on the date that Fred Korematsu was charged with violating Order 9066, on March 30, 1942, there were conflicting orders. Orders that had both forbidden him from leaving the area and had forbidden him from staying. On March 27, 1942, Proclamation No. 4 was released by General DeWitt, stating the following. And I quote, It is necessary, in order to provide for the welfare and to ensure the orderly evacuation and resettlement of Japanese 
voluntarily migrating from military area number one to restrict and regulate such migration and ordered that as of March 29, 1942, all alien Japanese and persons of Japanese ancestry who are within the limits of military area number one be and they are hereby prohibited from leaving that area for any purpose on until and to the extent that a future proclamation or order of this headquarters shall so permit or direct, end quote. So Korematsu was, by this proclamation, now confined to the area in which he lived, which was within military area number one. To clarify, Fred Korematsu was forbidden by military order to leave the zone in which he lived, and he was also forbidden by military order to stay in that zone. The only way for Fred to avoid punishment was to go to an assembly center and submit himself to military imprisonment. I want to jump ahead here and include a quote from General DeWitt, dated April 13, 1943, given before the House Naval Affairs Subcommittee to investigate congested areas in San Francisco. This quote is included in this document and therefore deemed relevant to this case in the concern of racist agenda. And I quote, I don't want any of them, persons of Japanese ancestry, here. They are a dangerous element. There is no way to determine their loyalty. The West Coast contains too many vital installations essential to the defense of this country to allow any Japanese on this coast. The danger of the Japanese was, and is now, if they are permitted to come back, espionage and sabotage. It makes no difference whether he is an American citizen. He is still a Japanese. American citizenship does not necessarily determine loyalty, but we, but we must worry about the Japanese all the time until he is wiped off the map. Sabotage and espionage will make problems as long as he is allowed in this area. End quote. Jumping back to the case of Korematsu, he was initially sentenced to five years of probation and he and his family were relocated to an internment camp in Utah. Fred appealed the district court's decision and the Supreme Court agreed to hear his approval. Arguments were made on October 11, 1944, and the court upheld the sentence. For the majority, Justice Hugo L. Black argued, and I quote, Compulsory exclusion of large groups of citizens from their homes, except under circumstances of direst emergency and peril, is inconsistent with our basic governmental institutions. But when, under conditions of modern warfare, our shores are threatened by hostile forces, the power to protect must be commensurate with the threatened danger. End quote. Robert H. Jackson gave this statement in his dissent. And I quote, Korematsu was born on our soil, of parents born in Japan. The Constitution makes him a citizen of the United States by nativity, and a citizen of California by residence. No claim is made that he is not loyal to this country. There is no suggestion that, apart from the matter involved here, he is not law-abiding and well-disposed. Korematsu, however, has been convicted of an act not commonly a crime. It consists merely of being present in the state whereof he is a citizen, near the place where he was born, and where all his life he has lived. End quote. To tie this up, because I am all legaled out, 
In 2011, the Solicitor General of the U.S. confirmed that one of his predecessors had deceived the court by withholding a report by the Office of Naval Intelligence that concluded that Japanese Americans did not post a threat to national security. In Trump v. Hawaii in 2018, the Supreme Court repudiated and overturned the Korematsu decision. They characterized it as, quote, gravely wrong the day it was decided, and, quote, overruled in the court of history. Holy crap. There is a lot more information on this case and the Military Order 9066 leading to Japanese internment in the the United States. I did not cover this necessarily how I had originally planned, but I thought it important to give a specific case and experience of a Japanese American. Go back far enough and we are all descended from another land. I've even read that indigenous Americans' ancestors crossed from Russia to what is now the state of Alaska and migrated down into this continent. The land that your ancestors come from does not speak to your loyalty. And we cannot deem people of a whole population as dangerous or untrustworthy. It simply defies logic to do so. No matter your age, gender, religion, culture, or ancestry, you have people who take controversial action. People who do good and people who do awful things. And then everything in between. None of the previous factors can be included in deciphering what the individual is motivated to do or how morally sound they are. I understand that in this case, we are speaking of war between two countries and therefore the cultures and peoples within them. But you have to take into account that treating your own citizens, citizens that help to fuel your economy and population, with prejudice, will only harm your country as a whole. This country is born of a cry of freedom. So you cannot push out people who do not look and act like you. You cannot withhold their rights based on bias. It was stated many times that the German Americans and Italian Americans received more understanding and even had investigations into the individuals to see if there was any chance of espionage or threat to national security where by and large, and not until later in the war, Japanese Americans did not. They were grouped as a whole and sent to camps. Some were excluded from camps and were allowed to relocate on their own terms, but this number was too small. Also, your ancestry does not necessarily determine your loyalties. You're talking about people who migrated to a new continent to start a new life and look for better opportunity. It seems to me, in most cases, less likely that they would attack this land of promise. As I stated before, there is so much more information on this case, the Japanese internment, and the executive order that was given. And I welcome you to look further into it. I do apologize for not having a well-rounded and complete storyline based out for you guys. Um, Honestly, to be completely transparent, I'm a human and I do have a full-time job outside of this. I have a husband, a pet, a family. Sometimes we can't split our time as we would like to. That being said, I hope that the message is clear that no one case is more important or less important than the other. Every single one of these deserves to have their voice heard. 
every single one of them deserves to be spread so that more people learn about the history of our country and the history of our people, regardless of the gender, regardless of the race, regardless of the culture or religion. So if you're not satisfied with the information that I gave you so far, definitely research it more. Look more into it. There is more information out there about it, for sure. If you want to access episodes early, become a patron of Little Known Crime. Go to patreon.com slash littleknowncrime. Your support not only offers you merch, it helps to fund this podcast so that I can keep it going. Podcasting costs money, and helping to fund can help with better research and equipment to add to a higher quality for you. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review. The more reviews I get, the wider listenership, and the more people will hear about these cases and individuals. The individual from the missing indigenous people of Washington state is either Anaya or Anya Brown, 17 years old. She was reported missing on March 7th of 2022. If you have any information regarding her whereabouts, please contact the Auburn Police Department at 253-931-3080. Check out my Instagram at Little Known Crime, where I will be posting photos from today's episode along with links and contact information for the police department. If you have a case, event, or individual that you would like for me to cover, contact me at littleknowncrime at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chandra Mel, and this is Little Known Crime.